welcome to a continued reading of the doctrine of absolute destination by Jerome Zanchius. Chapter 5, showing that the scripture doctrine of predestination should be openly preached and insisted on, and for what reasons. Upon the whole, it is evident that the doctrine of God's eternal and unchangeable predestination should neither be wholly suppressed and laid aside, nor yet be confined to the disquisition of the learned and speculative only, but likewise should be publicly taught from the pulpit and the press, that even the meanest of the people may not be ignorant of the truth which reflects such glory on God, and is the very foundation of happiness to man. Let it, however, be preached with judgment and discretion, i.e. delivered by their preacher as it is delivered in Scripture and no otherwise, by which means it can neither be abused to licentiousness nor misapprehended to despair, but will eminently conduce to the knowledge, establishment, improvement and comfort of them that hear. That predestination ought to be preached. I thus prove, 1. The Gospel is to be preached, and that not British partially and by piecemeal, but the whole of it. The commission runs, go forth and preach the gospel. The gospel itself, even all the gospel, without exception or limitation. So far as the gospel is maimed of any branch of the evangelical system, is suppressed and passed over in silence, so far the gospel is not preached. Besides, there is scarce any other distinguishing doctrine of the gospel can be preached in its purity and consistency without this of predestination. Election is the golden thread that runs through the whole Christian system. It is the leaven that pervades the whole lump. Cicero says in the various parts of human learning, the whole circle of arts have a kind of mutual bond and connection and by a sort of reciprocal relationship are held together and interwoven with each other. Much the same may be said of this important doctrine. It is the bond which keeps, connects and keeps together the whole Christian system, which, without this, is like a system of sand, ever ready to fall to pieces. It is the cement which holds the fabric together, nay, it is the very soul that animates the whole frame. So it is so blended and interwoven with the entire scheme of gospel doctrine, but when the former is excluded, the latter bleeds to death. An ambassador is to deliver the whole message with which he is charged. He is to omit no part of it, but must declare the mind of the sovereign he represents, fully and without reserve. He is to say neither more or less than the instructions of his court require, else he comes under displeasure, perhaps loses his head, let the, ministers of gospel, uh, let the ministers of Christ weigh this well. Nor is a gospel to be preached only, but preached to every creature, i.e. to reasonable beings, promiscuously and at large, to all who frequent the Christian ministry of every state and condition in life. Whether high or low, young or old, learned or illiterate, all who attend on the ministrations of Christ's ambassadors have a right to hear the gospel fully, clearly, and without mincing. Preach it, says Christ. Mark 16:15. Publish it abroad. Be it scryers and heralds. Proclaim it loud. Tell it out. 
keep back no part of it. Spare not. Lift up your voices like trumpets. Now, a very considerable branch of this gospel is the doctrine of God's eternal, free, absolute, and irreversible election of some persons in Christ to everlasting life. The saints are singled out in God's eternal purpose and choice to be endued with faith, and therefore thereby fitted for their destined salvation. But their interest in the gratuitous, unalienable love of the blessed Trinity they come to be, subjectively saints and believers, so that their whole salvation, from the first plan of it in the divine mind, to the consummation of it in glory, is at once a matter of mere grace and of absolute certainty. While they who die without faith and holiness prove thereby that they were not included in this elect number and were not written in the book of life. The justice of God's procedure herein is unquestionable. Out of a corrupt mass wherein not one was better than another, he might, as was before observed before, love and choose whom and as many as he pleased. It was likewise without any shadow of injustice at his option whom and how many he would pass by. His not choosing them was the fruit of his sovereign will, but his condemning them after death and in the last day is a fruit, not of their non-election, which was no fault of theirs, but of their own positive transgressions. The elect, therefore, have their utmost reason to love and glorify God, which any beings can possibly have, and the sense of what he has done for them is the strongest motive to obedience. On the other hand, the reprobates have nothing to complain of, since whatever God does is just and right, and so it will appear to be, however darkly matters may appear to us now, when we see him as he is, and know him even as we are known. And now, why should not this doctrine be preached and insisted upon in public? A doctrine which is of express revelation, a doctrine that makes holy for the glory of God, which conduces in a most peculiar manner to the conversion, comfort, and sanctification of the elect, and leaves even the ungodly themselves without excuse. But perhaps you will still be inclined to question whether predestination is indeed a scripture doctrine. If so, let me, by way of sample, beg you to consider the following declarations. First, of Christ. Secondly, of his apostles. If the mighty works that have been done in thee had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented, etc., Matthew 11, whence it is evident that the Tyrians and Sidonians, at least the majority of them, died in a state of impenitency, but that if God had given them the same means of grace afforded to Israel, they would not have died impenitent, yet these means were not granted them. How can this be accounted for? Only on the single principle of peremptory predestination flowing from the sovereign will of God. No wonder then that our Lord concludes that chapter with these remarkable words, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Where Christ thanks the Father for doing that very thing which Arminians exclaim against as unjust and censor as partial, to you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. Matthew 13. 
to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give except to them to whom it has been prepared by my Father. Salvation is not a precarious thing. The seats in glory were disposed of long ago in my Father's intention and destination. I can only assign them to such persons as they were prepared for in his decree. Matthew 20, 23. Many are called, but few chosen. Matthew 22. All who live under the sound of the gospel will not be saved, but those only who are elected unto life. For the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Matthew 24. If it were possible, they should deceive the very elect. Where it is plain, Christ teaches two things, that there is a certain number of persons who are elected to grace and glory, and two, that it is absolutely impossible for these to be deceived into total and final apostasy. Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Matthew 25 Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to them that are without, i.e. out of the pale of election, all these things are done in parables, the seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted, and their sin should be forgiven them. Mark 11 Rejoice, because your names are written in heaven. Luke 10 It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Luke 12 One should be taken, and the other should be left. Luke 17 All that the Father hath given me shall come unto me. John 6 As much as to say, these shall, but the rest, these shall, but the rest cannot. He that is of God, heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye not, are not of God. John 8, not chosen of him. Ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep. John 10. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. John 15. I come now second to the apostles. They believed not in him, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spoke. Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, but they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. John 12, 37, 40. Without certain prescience, there could be no prophecy, and without predestination, no certain prescience. Therefore, in order to the accomplishment of prophecy, prescience and predestination, we are expressly told that these persons could not believe. They were not able. It was out of their power. In short, there is hardly a page in St. John's Gospel which does not, either expressly or implicitly, make mention of election and reprobation. St. Peter says of Judas, Men and brethren, the scriptures must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, Acts 1, so that he might go to his own place, verse 25, to the place of punishment appointed for him. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, 
ye have taken, and with wicked hands have crucified and slain. Acts 2. Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Acts 4. Predestinated should come to pass. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Acts 13. Designated, destined, or appointed unto life. Concerning the Apostle Paul, what shall I say? Everyone that has read his epistles knows that they teem with predestination from beginning to end. I shall only give one or two passages and begin with that famous chain. Whom he did foreknow, or forelove, for to know often signifies in Scripture to love. He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That, as in all things else, so in the business of election, Christ might have the preeminence, he being first chosen as a saviour, and they in him to be saved by him. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he also called, him he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Romans 7, and Romans 8. Chapter 9, 10, and 11 of the same epistle are professed dissertations on and illustrations of the doctrine of God's decrees and contain likewise a solution of the principal objections brought against that doctrine. Who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace? Galatians 1. The first chapter of Ephesians treats of little else but election and predestination. After observing that the reprobates perish willfully, the apostle, by a striking transition, addresses himself to the elect Thessalonians, saying, But we are bound to give thanks unto God always for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. 2 Thessalonians 2 Who have saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ before the world began 2 Peter 1 St. Jude on the other hand describes the reprobate as ungodly men who were of old foreordained to this condemnation Another apostle makes this peremptory declaration who stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, a people purchased to be his own peculiar property and possession. 1 Peter 2, 8, 9 To all which may be added, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, Revelation 17.8 All these texts are but an handful to the harvest, and yet are both numerous and weighty enough to, to, to decide the point with any who pay the least deference to Scripture authority. And let it be observed that Christ and his apostles delivered these matters, not to some privileged persons only, but to all at large who had ears to hear and eyes to read. Therefore it is incumbent on every faithful minister to tread in their steps by doing likewise nor is that minister a faithful one faithful to Christ 
to truth and to souls, who keeps back any part of the counsel of God, and buries these doctrines in silence, which is commanded to preach upon the housetops. The great St. Augustine, in his valuable treatise, De Bono Persevere, actually obviates the objection to those who are burying the doctrine of predestination in silence. He shows that it ought to be publicly taught, describes the necessity and usefulness of preaching it, and points out the manner of doing it to edification. And since some persons have condemned St. Augustine by bell, book, and candle for his steadfast attachment to the nervous, successful defences of the decrees of God, let us hear what Luther, that great light in the Church, thought respecting the argument before us. Erasmus, in most other respects a very excellent man, affected to think that it was a dangerous consequence to propagate the doctrine of predestination, either by preaching or writing. His words are these, What can be more useless than to publish this paradox of the world, namely that whatever we do is done, not by virtue of our own free will, but in a way of necessity, etc. What a white gap does the publication of this tenet open among men for the commission of all ungodliness? What wicked person will reform his life? Who will dare to believe himself a favourite of heaven? Who will fight against his own corrupt inclinations? Therefore, where is either the need or the utility of spreading these notions from whence so many evils seem to flow? To which Luther replies, If my Erasmus, you consider these paradoxes, as you term them, to be no more than inventions of men, why are you so extravagantly heated on the occasion? In that case, your arguments affect me not, for there is no person now living in the world who is more about enemy to the doctrines of men than myself. But if you believe the doctrines in debate between us to be, as indeed they are, the doctrines of God, you must have bid adieu to all sense of shame and decency, thus to oppose them. I shall not ask whither is the modesty of Erasmus fled, but which is much more important, where alas are your fear and reverence of the deity when you roundly declare that this branch of truth which has revealed from heaven is at best useless and unnecessary to be, to be known. What? Shall the glorious creator be taught by you, his creature, what is fit to be preached and what to be suppressed? Is the adorable God so very defective in wisdom and prudence as not to know till you instruct him what would be useful and what pernicious? Or could he, with whose understanding is infinite, foresee, previous to his revelation of this doctrine, what would be the consequences of his revealing it until those consequences were pointed out by you? You cannot, you dare not say this, if then it was the divine pleasure to make known these things in his word, and to bid his messengers publish them abroad, and leave the consequences of their so doing to the wisdom and providence of him in whose name they speak, and whose message they declare, who art thou, Erasmus, that thou shouldest reply against God, and say to the Almighty, What doest thou? St. Paul, discoursing of God, declares peremptorily, whom he will he hardener, and again God willing to show his wrath, etc. And the apostle did not write this to have it stifled among a few persons and buried in a corner, but wrote it to the Christians at Rome, which was, in effect, 
bringing this doctrine upon the stage of the whole world, stamping an universal imprimatur upon it, and publishing it to believers at large throughout the earth. What can sound harsher in the uncircumcised ears of carnal men than those words of Christ, Many are called, but few chosen. And elsewhere, I know whom I have chosen. Now these and similar assertions of Christ and his apostles are the very positions which you, Erasmus, brand as useless and hurtful. You object. If these things are so, who will endeavour to amend his life? I answer, without the Holy Ghost, no man can amend his life to purpose. Reformation is but varnished hypocrisy unless it proceeds from grace. The elect and truly pious are amended by the Spirit of God, and those of mankind who are not amended by him will perish. You ask, moreover, who will dare to believe himself a favourite of heaven? I answer, it is not in man's own power to believe himself, such upon just grounds, until he is enabled from above. But the elect shall be so enabled, they shall believe themselves to be what indeed they are. As for the rest who are not endued with faith, they shall perish, raging and blaspheming as you do now. But, say you, these doctrines open a door to ungodliness. I answer, whatever door they may open to the impious and profane, yet they open the door of righteousness to the elect and holy, and show them the way to heaven and the path of access unto God. Yet you would have us abstain from the mention of these grand doctrines, and leave our people in the dark as to their election of God, the consequence of which would be that every man would bolster himself up with a delusive hope of sharing that salvation which is supposed to lie open to all, unless genuine humility and the practical fear of God would be kicked out of doors. This would be a pretty way indeed of stopping up the gap as Miss complains of. Instead of closing up the door of licentiousness, as is falsely pretended, it would be, in fact, opening a gulf into the nevermost hell. Still he words, where is either the necessity or utility of preaching predestination? God himself teaches it, or commands us to teach it, and that is answer now. We are not to arraign the deity and bring the motives of his will to the test of human scrutiny but simply to revere both him and it. Who alone is all wise and all just can in reality, however things appear to us, do wrong to no man, neither can he do anything unwisely or rashly. And this consideration will suffice to silence all the objections of truly religious persons. However, let us for argument's sake go a step further. I will venture to assign over and above two very important reasons why this doctrine should be publicly taught. 1. For the humiliation of our pride and the manifestation of divine grace. God hath assuredly promised his favour to the truly humble. By truly humble, by truly humble I mean those who are endued with repentance and despair of saving themselves, for a man can never be said to be really penitent and humble until he is made to know that his salvation is not suspended in any measure, whatever on his own strength, machinations, endeavours, free will or works, but entirely depends on the free pleasure, purpose, determination and efficiency of another, even of God alone. 
Whilst a man is persuaded that he has it in his power to contribute anything, be it ever so little, to his own salvation, he remains in carnal confidence. He is not a self-despairer, and therefore he is not duly humbled before God. So far from it, that he hopes some favourable juncture or opportunity will offer when he may be able to lend a helping hand to the business of his salvation. On the contrary, whoever is truly convinced that the whole work depends singly and absolutely on the will of God, who alone is the author and the finisher of salvation, such a person despairs of all self-assistance. He renounces his own will and his own strength. He waits and prays for the operation of God, nor waits and prays in vain. For the elect's sake, therefore, these doctrines are to be preached, that the chosen of God, being humbled by the knowledge of his truths, self-emptied and sunk, as it were, into nothing in his presence, may be saved in Christ with eternal glory. This, then, is one inducement to the publication of the doctrine, that the penitent may be made acquainted with the promise of grace, plead it in prayer to God, and receive it as their own. 2. The nature of the Christian faith requires it. Faith has to do with things not seen. And this is one of the highest degrees of faith, steadfastly to believe that God is infinitely merciful, though he saves comparatively but few and condemns so many, and that he is just, strictly just, though his own will, though his own will he makes such numbers of mankind necessarily liable to damnation. Now these are some of the unseen things whereof faith is the evidence. Whereas was it not was it in my power to commend to comprehend them? or clearly to make out how God is both inviolable, just, and infinitely merciful, notwithstanding the display of wrath and seeming inequality in his dispensations respecting the reprobate, faith would have little or nothing to do. But now, since these matters cannot be adequately comprehended by us in the present state of imperfection, there is room for the exercise of faith. The truths, therefore, respecting predestination in all its branches should be taught and published, they no less than the other mysteries of Christian doctrine, being proper objects of faith on the part of God's people. With Luther, the excellent Musa agrees, particularly on Ephesians 1, where his words are, There are some who affirm that election is not to be mentioned publicly to the people. But they judge wrongly. The blessings which God bestows on man are not to be suppressed, but insisted and enlarged upon. And if so, surely the blessing of predestination unto life, which is the greatest blessing of all, should not be passed over. And, uh, and a little after he adds, Take away the remembrance and consideration of our election, and then, good God, what weapons have we left us wherewith to resist the temptations of Satan? As often as he assaults our faith, which he is frequently doing, we must constantly and without delay have recourse to our election in Christ as to a city of refuge. Meditation upon the Father's appointment of us to eternal life is the best antidote against the evil surmisings of doubtfulness and remaining unbelief. If we are entirely void of all hope and assurance respecting our interest in this capital privilege, what solid 
and comfortable expectation can we entertain of future blessedness? How can we look upon God as our gracious Father and upon Christ as our unchangeable Redeemer without which I see not how we can ever truly love God? And if we have no true love towards Him, how can we yield acceptable obedience to Him? Therefore, those persons are not to be heard who would have the doctrine of election laid, as it were, asleep, and seldom or never make its appearance in the congregations of the faithful. To what these great men have so nervously advanced, permit me to add that the doctrine of predestination is not only useful, but absolutely necessary to be taught and known. 1. For without it we cannot form just and becoming ideas of God. Thus, unless he certainly foreknows and foreknew from everlasting all things that should come to pass, his understanding would not be infinite, and a deity of limited understanding is no deity at all. Again, we cannot suppose him to have foreknown anything which he had not previously decreed, without setting up a series of courses, extra diem, making the deity dependent for a great part on the knowledge he has upon the will and works of his creatures and upon a combination of circumstances exterior to himself. Therefore, his determinate plan, counsel and purpose, i.e. his own predestination of causes and effects, is the only basis of his foreknowledge, which foreknowledge could neither be certain nor independent, but is founded on his own antecedent decree. True. He alone is entitled to the name of true God who governs all things and without whose will, either efficient or permissive, nothing is or can be done. And such is the God of scriptures against whom, whose will not a sparrow can die nor a hair fall from our heads. Matthew 10. Now what is predestination? but the determining will of God. I defy the subtlest semi-Panelagian in the world to form or convey a just and worthy notion of the Supreme Being without admitting him to be the great cause of all causes else, himself dependent on none, who willed from eternity how he would act in time and settled a regular determinate scheme of what he would do and permit to be done from the beginning to the consummation of the world. A contrary view of the deity is as inconsistent with reason itself and with the very religion of nature as it is with the decisions of revelation. 3. Nor can we rationally conceive of an independent, all-perfect, first cause without allowing him to be unchangeable in his purposes. His decrees and his essence coincide. Consequently, a change in those would infer an alteration in this. How can that being be the true God, whose will is variable, fluctuating and indeterminate, for his will is himself willing? A deity without decrees, and decrees without immutability, are, of all inventions, ever entered the heart of man, the most observed. For, Without predestination to plan, and without providence to put that plan in execution, what becomes of God's omnipotence? It vanishes into air. It becomes a mere non-entity. For what sort of omnipotence is that which may be baffled and defeated by the very creatures it has made? 
very different is the idea, idea of this attribute suggested by the psalmist whatsoever the Lord willed that did he in heaven and in earth in the sea and all deep places Psalm 113 i.e. he not only made them when he would but orders them when made 5 he alone is the true God according to scripture representation who saves that saves by his mere mercy and voluntary grace those he whom he has chosen and righteously condemns for their sins those whom he thought fit to pass by but without predestination there could be no such thing either as sovereign mercy or voluntary grace for after all what is predestination but his decree to save some of his mere goodness and to condemn others in his mere judgment now it is most evident that scripture doctrine of predetermination is the clearest mirror wherein we see wherein to see and contemplate these essential attributes of God here they all shine forth in their fullness of harmony and luster deny predestination and you deny though perhaps not intentionally yet by necessary consequence the adorable perfections of the Godhead in concealing that you throw a veil over these and in preaching that, you hold up these to the comfort, establishment, and admiration of the believing world. 2. Predestination is to be preached because the grace of God, which stands opposed to all human worthiness, cannot be maintained without it. The excellent St. Augustine makes use of this very argument. If, says he, these two privileges, namely faith itself, and final perseverance in faith are the gifts of God and if God foreknew on whom he would bestow these gifts who can doubt of so evident a truth it is necessary for predestination to be preached as a sure and invincible bulwark of that true grace of God which is given to men without any consideration of merit thus argued St. Augustine against the Pelagians who taught that grace is offered to all men alike that God, for his part, equally wills the salvation of all, and that it is in the power of man's free will to accept or reject the grace and salvation so offered. Which strings of errors do, as Augustine justly observed, centre in this grand point, that God's grace is not free, but the fruit of man's desert. Now the doctrine of predestination batters down this delusive babel of free will and merit. It teaches us that if we do indeed will and desire to lay hold on Christ and salvation by him, this will and desire are the effect of God's secret purpose, an effectual operation, for he it is who worketh in us both to will and to do of his own good pleasure, that he that glorieth should glory in the Lord, that neither is nor can be any medium between predestinating grace and salvation by human merit. We must believe and preach one or the other, for they can never stand together. No attempts to mingle and reconcile these two incompatible opposites can ever succeed, the apostle being himself judge. If, says he, it, namely election, be by grace, then it is no more of works, Otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, 
then it is no more grace, otherwise work is no more work. Romans 11.6 Exactly agreeable to which is that of St. Augustine. Either predestination is to be preached as expressly as the scriptures deliver it, namely, that with regard to those whom he has chosen, the gifts and calling of God are without repentance, or we must rarely declare, as the Pelagians do, the grace is given according to merit. Most certain it is that the doctrine of gratuitous justification through Christ can only be supported on that of our gratuitous predestination in Christ, since the latter is the cause and foundation of the former. 3. By the preaching of predestination, man is duly humbled, and God alone is exalted, human pride is levelled, and the divine glory shines untarnished because unrivaled. This the sacred writers positively declare, that since Paul be the spokesman for the rest, having predestinated us to the praise of the glory of his grace, how is it possible for us to render unto God the praises due to the glory of his grace without laying this threefold foundation? 1. That whoever, whosoever are or shall be saved are saved by his, his alone grace in Christ in consequence of his eternal purpose passed before they had done any one good thing. 2. That what good, that what good things soever is begun to be wrought in our souls whether it be illumination of the understanding, rectitude of will or purity of affections was begun altogether of God alone, by whose invincible agency grace is at first conferred, afterwards maintained, and finally crowned. 3. That the work of internal salvation, the sweet and certain prelude to eternal glory, was not only begun in us by his mere grace alone, but that its continuance, its progress and increase, are no less free and totally unmerited than his first original donation. Grace alone makes the elect gracious. Grace alone keeps them gracious. And the same grace alone will render them everlasting glorious in the heaven of heavens. Conversion and salvation must, in the very nature of things, be wrought and effected either by ourselves alone, or by ourselves and God together, or solely by God himself. The Pelagians were for the first. The Arminians are for the second. True believers are for the last, because the last hypothesis, and that only, is built on the strongest evidence of scripture, reason, and experience. It most effectually hides pride from man, and sets a crown of undivided praise upon the head, or rather casts it down the feet, of that glorious triune God who worketh all in all. But this is a crown which no sinners ever yet cast before the throne of God, who were not first led into the transporting views of his gracious decree to save freely and of his own will, the people of his eternal love. Exclude, therefore, O Christian, the article of sovereign predestination from thy ministry or from thy faith, and acquit thyself, if thou art able, from the charge of robbing God. When, what, when God does, by the omnipotent ex exertion of his Spirit, effectually call any of mankind 
in time to the actual knowledge of himself in Christ, when he likewise goes on to sanctify the sinners he has called, making them to excel in all good works, and to persevere in the love and resemblance of God to their life's end, the observing part of the unawakened world may be apt to conclude that these converted persons might receive such measures of grace from God because of some previous qualifications, good dispositions, or pious desires and internal preparations discovered in them by the all-seeing eye, which, if true, would indeed transfer the praise from the Creator and consign it to the creature. But the doctrine of predestination, absolute, free, unconditional predestination, here steps in and gives God his own. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.